0: For many, many years and uh, lives currently in Washington, D.C. and um, prays for our nation and uh, works for Voice of the Martyrs and um, really trying to help the Christian, the, the church worldwide and especially here in America understand the plight of the persecuted church. And so they're very, very dear friends um, of, of us personally and of this ministry and and we just counted an honor that they're going to get to be with us next weekend. So Saturday night is our fellowship and baptism. And then Sunday morning, uh, Gitana will be here ministering. So they'll be with us Saturday night for the fellowship and the baptism. And so really would encourage you guys to come out Saturday night at 6 o'clock. We'll have a meal and after the meal we'll, we'll have a baptism service and it'll be a great time. So please plan on coming and we hope to see you then. All right? In the meantime, let's open our Bible to the book of Acts. And we're going to continue talking about the Holy Spirit. And if you remember last week, we began talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And in the Scripture, there are four recorded outpourings. And we talked about two of those last, last week. Um, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 records the the initial outpouring on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, Uh, what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Then in Acts 8, we see an outpouring that occurred at least two years after that initial outpouring at Pentecost. Uh, Two years later, in Samaria, the Samaritans, and we talked about why that was significant Because Jews and Samaritans didn't have dealings with one another. And there was a sovereign reason why God ordered and ordained those Jewish apostles who were leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He ordained that they go to Samaria and that they would, those Jews, lay hands on those Samaritans. And those Jews with their own eyes see those Samaritans receive the same Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews received it on the day of Pentecost, so that there could not be any denial that the same salvation, the same Holy Spirit is available to the Samaritans just as it is to the Jews. And these four outpourings, they mirror the Great Commission. Jesus said, you shall receive power When the Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And so we saw that for the first two years, the church didn't leave Jerusalem. And then a persecution arose, and that's recorded in Acts chapter 8. And that persecution drove them out of Jerusalem. The scripture says, all except the apostles, it drove them out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. Then Acts 11 says it drove them even farther. They went into Phoenicia, which is what we would currently call Lebanon. They went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and even into Antioch, which is modern-day Turkey. But yet it says in Acts 11 that they preached to no one except the Jews. So we see finally when they're driven out of Jerusalem and they begin to preach outside of Jerusalem, they're only still preaching to Jews. Until Philip, here in Acts chapter 8, begins to preach to the Samaritans. And so we see that God ordered it for those Jewish leaders of the church in Jerusalem to see the Holy Spirit come upon the Samaritans in the same way that they had received it on the day of Pentecost so that there could be no prejudice or there could be no viewing Samaritans is somehow substandard because that's how they were viewed before. And to keep in mind, it wasn't just how the Jews viewed the Samaritans, but can you imagine how the Samaritans felt toward the Jews? These Jews who felt like they were dogs and half-breeds and not even worthy to, to walk on the same side of the road. And so God also ordered that these Jews would come down and lay hands on the Samaritans And you see that through that sovereign event ordered by God, God brought a unity and a restoration. And he very clearly proclaimed that they were one in Christ. Amen? So let's go on and let's talk about the next recorded outpouring. And this is going to be in Acts chapter 10, verse 44. Now, verse 44 is actually, this is when the event takes place. But if we want to understand the context of this event, we really need to go back to the beginning of Acts chapter 10. Let's just go there. Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. So this is a Roman centurion. He's not a Jew. He's not a Samaritan. He's a Gentile. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. He feared God, but he wasn't saved. There there was something in him. Obviously, there was a work that God was doing bringing this man to salvation. Just like There is a work that God does in all of us. Everyone who is here that is saved, that is born again, there was a time when perhaps you you were not. You remember you were not. For me, I lived 23 years and, and didn't know the Lord, and I remember when I was brought to faith, and I remember that drawing of the Holy Spirit in my life before I actually surrendered my life to Jesus. Now that doesn't mean maybe you're here and you were raised in a Christian home and raised in church and you say, well, you know, uh, I can't put my finger on, I just have always believed and had a knowledge of God. There's nothing wrong with that. The point is, do you know that you're saved today? Do you know that you have been saved by grace through faith? That you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, this Roman centurion was a Gentile. He, he was a pagan. And, and, but yet there was something in him. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that was drawing him to fear God, to give alms generously. And, and he wanted to know God. This is the work of the Spirit. This is the work of grace. And so this is this Roman centurion who is praying and fasting... And it says, about the ninth hour of the day, verse 3, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. So this Cornelius, this Gentile, has this clear vision. And God says, send men to go get this man named Simon, whose surname is Peter, dwelling at the house of Simon a tanner. And so they sinned, so Cornelius sends his men. Then it says in verse 9, the next day as they went on their journey and drew near the city. So while Cornelius's men are going to Joppa, Joppa was just a, it was not far from Caesarea, it's just a little south of Caesarea on the seashore there. It says as, as his men were going to Joppa, at the same time they're going to find this Simon, whose surname is, is uh, um, Peter, um, the, at the same time that they're going to find him, Peter is up on the housetop praying about the sixth hour at about noon that day. And he became very hungry. He's like all the rest of us. Noontime comes and what do you want to do? You want to eat lunch. So he's on the rooftop of Simon's house praying. And it's about noon and Peter becomes very hungry. And it says that while he was up there and he became very hungry... And he wanted to eat, and while they made ready, in other words, while they were downstairs getting lunch ready, what happened to Peter? He went into a trance, the scripture says. And he saw heaven open, and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, birds of the air. And a voice came to him Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. Why? Because Peter was a Jew. Now this is, this is at a minimum five years after the initial outpouring of the Spirit. It, it may be longer than five years, but it's at least five years. So understand what's transpiring here. The day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter comes down from the upper room, having received the Holy Spirit, and he preaches this sermon. And in this sermon, as a result of the sermon, it says over 3,000 people were saved. The church is established in Jerusalem. They're there, growing, flourishing, meeting from house to house. They do this for two years. Everybody's happy. Everybody's excited. They have favor with everybody. The scripture says in Acts chapter 2, they they met together daily. They ate their food together with gladness, praising God. It's a wonderful world. The only problem is they're not carrying out the Great Commission. Jesus said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so what does God do? Now hear me, church. Not the devil. But God causes a persecution to arise. Now, the enemy may have been the tool God used, but I'm going to tell you right now, the enemy didn't persecute the church. The enemy didn't sneak one over on God. God allowed that persecution to take place because God wanted his commission to be fulfilled. And so he disrupts the wonderful little world that had been created there in Jerusalem, and they're driven out to Judea and Samaria, and they begin preaching the gospel. Only problem is they're only preaching to Jews. Well, here comes Philip, the evangelist, and he preaches to Samaritans. Word gets back to the guys in Jerusalem. Hey, do you know the Samaritans have received the word of God? And and, and so they sent Peter and John down there, and sure enough, they had already been uh, preached the word of faith, they had been baptized in water, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God in His sovereignty reserved that experience for those Jewish leaders to see and to know that the samaritans have received the same salvation and so they did they laid hands they saw the spirit come upon them and they said man do you know what the samaritans have received the same salvation we have received now we're even three years or more beyond that experience and peter is on top of a house praying by the seashore and god gives him a vision of a sheep being lowered down with all manner of animal in it, clean and unclean. And he says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, Lord forbid, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. And so here, here's, where, why is God doing this? Why, why would the Lord tell Peter to eat something that the law of Moses, that the word of God clearly says don't do? And a voice spoke to him again, verse 15, Acts chapter 10, a second time, and said, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now, it's important for us to understand what God is doing here. He's not just trying to expand Peter's culinary experience. He's not just trying to get Peter to find out how good bacon is. Anybody like bacon? Man, I love bacon. I mean, anything you put bacon on, it just makes it better. But Peter, up until this time, Peter was not allowed to eat bacon. Poor guy. I mean, come on. It was against the law. It was against God's word. And what I'm telling you is God's not just trying to get Peter to try new and exciting foods. You know, anybody that comes to my house, poor yo-yo. You know, she comes to visit. I just have this thing, you know, I want people to try. It's like, man, you should try this. Now, I remember Joel and Raoul, bless her heart, she'd come to the house and she wouldn't even eat vegetables, you know, and it, it, I'd try to talk her into eating all these different things, you know, and sure enough, she'd eat it. It's like, wow, this is really it's pretty good. That's not what Peter's trying to do. God, That's not what God is trying to do with Peter here. He is teaching Peter a lesson. Peter could relate to this food because... The law was, was part of his life still. He didn't eat things that the scripture called unclean. And so God says, Peter, rise and eat. Kill and eat. Oh, God, I can't do that. These, these are unclean things. And then God says, Peter, don't call anything that I have cleansed, don't call it common or don't call it unclean or don't consider it untouchable anymore. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven. Do you see this pattern in Peter's life? Peter denied the Lord three times. God, in his grace, Jesus Christ, comes to the seashore. He gets Peter out of the boat. He brings Peter, and he causes Peter to confess his love for him. How many times? Three times. And now he's on the rooftop praying at the house of Simon the Tanner. Just praying, getting hungry, ready to go eat lunch. A nice kosher lunch. And God drops a sheet out of heaven and says, Eat some uncommon, eat some common and unclean things, Peter. Peter says, God forbid, Lord, I can't do it. And three times Peter is forced to hear the Lord say to him, Peter, don't call what I have made clean. Don't call it common don't consider it untouchable now while peter look at this was wondering within himself what this vision which he had seen meant now you you've got to really stop and think for a moment what is going on with peter here is a man who all of his life has been taught we don't eat bacon we don't eat pig we don't eat certain animals and we don't eat we don't eat catfish. We just don't do that. It's unclean. We don't eat shrimp. We don't eat lobster. We don't eat oysters. I mean, can you I grew up on the coast. I just can't imagine. Peter couldn't eat any of that stuff. He never was able to have bacon and eggs for breakfast. Couldn't do it. And now God is saying Peter, everything You've been taught all your life, I want you just to set it aside. Why? Because is is it that God was trying to teach him something and now God was contradicting himself? No. What Peter will come to realize, and this is, as you read the New Testament, this is what the writers of the New Testament came to understand. God was not just telling them a bunch of do's and don'ts in the Old Testament. God had a very specific purpose in giving us the law. Paul tells us what it is in Galatians. He says the purpose of the law, the law was my schoolmaster, it was my tutor that did what? That brought me to Christ. And God is not just telling Peter it's okay to eat bacon now. God is preparing Peter's heart to understand that the gospel is not just for the Jews and not just for the Samaritans, but Peter This gospel is also for the Gentiles. Peter has no idea what is getting ready to happen. And at the very moment, Peter is on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house, while he's up there on the, the roof of Simon the Tanner's home there, wondering, God, what in the world... Why are you showing me these things? Why have you told me this, God? What does this mean? At the very moment Peter is pondering these things, guess who's walking up to the door, fixing to knock on Simon the tanner's door? It's the men from Cornelius' house. And they have no idea what's happening to Peter at that very moment. Peter has no idea that some Gentile centurion has just sent his servants to come and get him. He has no idea what's getting ready to happen. But do you see how God in His grace has arranged everything? Peter didn't have anything to do with it. Peter didn't arrange this. Cornelius didn't arrange this. What was common about both of those men before this event took place... They were both praying. They were both seeking God. They both had a desire. And out of their sincere desire to know Christ, to know the will of God, out of that sincere desire, God in His grace ordained and orchestrated everything. Do you think God will do any less for you? We stress and we worry over so much trying to figure out how we're going to make something happen. How we're going to order these events of our lives that we think must happen. I'm telling you what, if we'll just trust God, God will orchestrate and order everything that needs to have happen. And when the time comes, He'll tell you exactly what you need to do. Just like He did with Peter and just like He did with Cornelius. Let's continue, verse 17. While Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant. Behold, the men who had been sent from the house of Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Peter is thinking, God, what's the deal with this sheet? And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God says to Peter, Peter, three men are seeking you. Arise therefore, go down and go with them, look at this, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all, the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. They don't even know what Peter's supposed to say. They just said, go, this guy Peter's going to tell you something you need to hear. Peter's up there praying. God gives him this unusual vision. Peter's like, what in the world does this mean, God? About that time, God says to Peter, hey, Peter, three men are coming for you. Go with them. Don't doubt anything. Just do. Do. Go with them. Do what they tell you to do. Just obey me, Peter. Don't don't worry. Don't doubt. So then he invited them in. They lodged uh, with them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. And some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Can you sense the anticipation? Cornelius really doesn't know what's going to happen. But, but he does know this. He had a clear vision from God. And God says, send some guys and go get this dude Peter. Peter. And Cornelius is like, okay, I don't know what's fixing to happen, but something's fixing to happen here. He calls all of his friends and all of his relatives and says, you guys need to come to the house because something is fixing to happen. I I don't know what it is, but God is fixing to do something. I, I don't even know who this God is, this God of the Jews. And so here they are gathered at the house of Cornelius. And as Peter was coming in, verse 25, Cornelius met him, And fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now, Cornelius doesn't know the Lord. But he knows he had a vision from God. An angel appeared to him. And told him, send for this guy. So when this guy Peter comes, what is the natural reaction of Cornelius who is a pagan? This guy must be a god. And he fell down and worshipped him. And Peter says, don't do that. Peter lifted him up, saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. We see a very similar scripture to that in the book of Revelation in, in John's experience. Verse 27, as he talked with them, he went and found many who had come together. And they said to them, you know how, Peter, this is what Peter says. Peter says to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with Or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Now Peter, Peter now understands what God was showing him on that rooftop. It wasn't about food. Just like the dietary laws were not just about food. It's not just because pork is bad for you. It is bad for you and shrimp is not good for you. That's all true. But it's so much more than what's good for you and what's not good for you, what's nutritious and what's not. God, everything from what you should and shouldn't eat to what you should and shouldn't wear to who you should and shouldn't associate with, everything is communicating one common theme. Everything is a road sign pointing us to who? To Jesus. And it's all coming together for Peter right here. He is beginning to understand what God is doing. How is he he coming to understand this? God is giving to Peter. Peter didn't get this on the day of Pentecost. Peter didn't get it when he walked with Jesus. Do you see there is a continuing revelation that's taking place in Peter's life? If you or I think that we got it all when we got saved, we did, in a sense, get it all. We are complete in Him. But I'm telling you what, there is a continuous revelation that God wants to give us. A revelation of what? A revelation of His Son. I'm not talking about some mystical, esoteric revelation or spiritual experience that that we want to have. I'm talking about a revelation of Christ, the Son of the living God. And for Peter... At a minimum, five years after that initial outpouring at Pentecost, God is getting ready to give him a revelation that is just blowing his mind. Not only can he eat this food that he was never allowed to eat, but now God is saying the food was just an object lesson. The real truth that I'm trying to get you to understand, Peter, is that this salvation that you have experienced is for all men. Do not call common or unclean any man. In other words, God says, all who will, whosoever will believe can be saved. Jew, Samaritan, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Peter's getting it here. You know how unlawful it is, but God says I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And Cornelius says, this is what happened. I was praying, I was fasting. God appeared to me, this this angel appeared to me and told me what to do. And so I sent for you to come. And so I sent... To you immediately, verse 33, and you have done well to come. Now, f- therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Verse 34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God... Look at this church. Now, we're talking about these four recorded outpourings. And I want you to understand, this is the purpose God, in His sovereign grace, God, by a sovereign plan that He ordained before time began, God ordained that Peter would be right at this time, right at this place, to declare the word of the Lord to these Gentiles. What Peter is getting ready to do was unthinkable to him a day previous. And Peter says, in truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Let me stop right there. What is the work of righteousness that Peter is talking about? Lest you are mistaken in believing that you can work righteousness. For your salvation, because you cannot. And the work of righteousness that Jesus is referring to, or that Peter's referring to, is the very thing Jesus proclaimed in John six twenty nine. Let, let me just read you the words of Jesus. Go to John chapter six, verse twenty eight. The multitude asks him, the people ask him, the disciples ask him. Then, sh- then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Would you say that all of God's works are righteous? Yes. So if I'm going to do a work of God, I'm going to do a work of righteousness. What may we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Peter is saying to them, In every nation, whoever fears him, Cornelius feared him. And Cornelius was able to believe in Christ why? Because there was something in Cornelius that said, you know what, I need someone, I need something bigger than myself. This is why he was praying and fasting four days before Peter got there. Do you recognize, do we recognize that we need someone and something bigger than ourselves? If you don't believe that, then you don't, you're not going to fear God. And I'm not talking about you being afraid that God's going to punish you because God's not out to punish you. God's not here to condemn you. How do we know that? Because Jesus said that. The Son of Man didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world was already condemned. So that's like saying, God's going to drown me. God says, no, I'm not going to drown you. You're already drowning. I came to throw you the life preserver. I didn't come to throw you in the lake and drown you I came because you're in the lake drowning and you can't get out by yourself. So I have come to save you. You're already drowning. You just don't know it. See, a lot of people think God is out to condemn them, out to judge them, out to punish them. God doesn't want to do that. He wants to save you. But here's the thing. The same word that will save you if you receive it by faith is the same word that will seal your condemnation. If you reject it. It all depends. Jesus said to the Pharisees. Your words will condemn you in the day of judgment. In other words, what you do with me, Jesus said. What you say about me. Because what you say about me is what's what's in your heart about me. That's what's going to condemn you on the day of judgment. Your words will condemn you. God says, I've sent my word to set you free. To deliver you from your condemnation. And so, Peter says, hey, there is no partiality now. And so, Peter begins to declare Christ to them. He he begins to tell them the gospel. Now, go down, fast forward to verse 44. And while Peter was still speaking... These words, what happened? He didn't even get to the invitation yet. He didn't even get to the part where he says, Okay, guys, you've heard the gospel now. I want to know, who wants to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior today? Peter didn't even get there. He's not even through preaching the gospel to them. And while he is in mid-sentence, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed. Now listen, who are those? Those who are of the circumcision who believed, those were the Jews. The Jews, when you see this in the scripture, of the circumcision, those of the circumcision, it's talking about Jews. couldn't be a Jew and, and not be circumcised. So all of these Jews that are there with Peter are listening to Peter proclaim the gospel. They think they're fixing to get convert a bunch of people to Judaism, and then they're going to believe in the Jewish Messiah. And so while they're preaching, guess what happens? The same Holy Spirit that fell on the day of Pentecost in the upper room upon those 120 Jews, the same Holy Spirit two years later that fell on the Samaritans, well, that was a shocker. The Samaritans have received salvation. Now God's shocking them even more. They're standing unlawfully according to the Jewish law, Unlawfully, they're in the house of this Gentile. Peter is preaching the gospel to them, and before Peter can even finish talking to them, the same Holy Spirit that was poured out on Pentecost was poured out on these Gentiles, on these uncircumcised pagans. And because of their uncircumcision, you know what they were considered? They were considered common. They were considered unclean they were just as unclean as as a pig out there wallowing in the mud to a jew those gentiles were just as unclean as that pig in the mud but what did god say don't call don't call them uncommon don't call them unclean don't call any man common and unclean and peter got it oh this isn't about food lord this is about men You know, it's unlawful for me to be here, but I perceive in truth that God has said to me, don't call you guys common and unclean. And so he preaches the gospel, not realizing what's fixing to happen. And why do you think God didn't wait for Peter to finish? I have my opinion about this. I think God did everything here in a way that Peter or Cornelius, that no man could take credit for what was transpiring. There was no way Peter was going to say, this happened because of me. This this happened because of some gift I have and I'm going to impart it to you. Uh Uh-uh. God knew exactly what needed to happen so that Peter and those other Jews standing there would have no doubt that the same salvation that had come to the Jews in Jerusalem just years prior 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the very same spirit that was poured out upon them, that was the fulfillment of what the prophet Joel said, this was the very same spirit that now had come upon the Gentiles. And God was sending a clear message. Peter, you other guys that are with Peter, there is no partiality. There is no exclusion when it comes to the gospel. There's none. And so the same Spirit fell upon those who heard the word. And those who were of the circumcision, who believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter. In other words, every one of them was stupefied. They could not speak. They were astonished. That's what that word means. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they had heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter says, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter says, I I don't know what to say. I have no argument here. I have nothing to argue with here. God has done this. Can we forbid water from these? In other words, these guys have been brought into faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has just baptized them into Christ, just like we were baptized into Christ. We cannot forbid them water. In other words, they have the right to make a public declaration, to make a public profession of their faith. These guys just got saved. They can be baptized into Christ just like we were baptized into Christ. They can publicly declare just like we were publicly and are publicly declaring we are people of the way. We are followers of Jesus Christ, the true Messiah of Israel. But they're Gentiles. Peter says, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Can you forbid them water? They received the same thing we received. God did this. What, what are we going to say about it? And he commanded them that they be, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Okay. Now, I, I went into a lot of detail about this because I want you to understand What's going on here? Do you see what's happening? God is systematically in a process bringing a revelation to the church that, hey, this salvation is not exclusive. There is not partiality. The Jews lived all those centuries with partiality toward the the Samaritans. In other words, not partiality in a favorable way. They looked upon the Gentiles. They may have have liked Cornelius because he was kind and merciful and he didn't take advantage of them as a Roman centurion like many of the Roman centurions did. So they liked Cornelius because he he was a fair guy. But don't mistake it, he was still a Gentile. The Jews did not look at Cornelius in the same way as they looked at at another Jew. They didn't look at a Samaritan in the same way that they looked at another Jew. And God knew this. And how do we know that's true? Because the scripture records that in the book of Acts, they preached to no one but the Jews. And why did they do that? Because based on the law of Moses and what they were taught and what they came to believe, all of that meant was we don't associate with those people. We don't eat that food. We don't go in their house. We don't talk to them. We don't rub shoulders with them. Only if we have to. But, but there is a separation here. We're Jews, and they're not. And God says, hey, I am abolishing that. That doesn't exist anymore. In Christ, there is no longer Jew or Samaritan or Gentile. But it's, it's one new man. And so we see, as a result, now I want you to see what's happening, as a result of this event in the house of Cornelius, as a result of this, we can go to now, into Acts chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem, and he is defending his ministry to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 11, we see Paul the Apostle is, has also come to Jerusalem. He's been three years up in, away from Jerusalem. He was in Damascus, and he's, he's up there preaching in the synagogues, and And he is preaching to Gentiles, unbeknownst to the church in Jerusalem. And now here comes Paul and Barnabas. And we see that in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15. In actuality, this is about, this is about 17, uh, actually this is, this is about 18 to 20 years after the outpouring at Pentecost, when we come into Acts chapter 15. Paul has already done his first missionary journey, and here's what I want you to see about this. Acts chapter 11, Peter's defending his ministry to the Gentiles in the Cornelius' house. He says, guys, what can we do? The same spirit was poured out. He relays what happens. Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, Acts records how Paul begins to turn to the Gentile nations. And now when we come to Acts chapter 15, this is a real important chapter. Because what's happening here is now Paul has come back to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas and Timothy are telling the church in Jerusalem, the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, hey, we've been preaching to the Gentiles, and they have been receiving salvation. And, and we're not making them get circumcised, by the way. We're not making them become Jews in order to receive salvation. <gasps> well, wait a minute. It's one thing to preach to them, but, but are you saying they don't have to keep the law? Paul's saying, yes, that's what I'm saying. The law was never meant to make us righteous. The law was meant to to bring us to Christ. We're Jews, that's fine. If you guys want to keep the law, keep the law. But we can't make these Gentiles come under the law because that's not what the law was for. The law was to reveal Christ. They they found Christ. They've been saved. they've, They've received the same salvation we have. And so this debate is taking place now. It's taking place about 17 years after the crucifixion or after the resurrection of Jesus. And what happens, look at this in Acts chapter 15. In verse 6, from verse 6 to verse 11, who rises up? Peter rises up and he tells the council in Jerusalem. Verse 7, Peter rose up and said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, about 12 years ago, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Do you see why God did 12 years earlier what he did? Why did God make Peter, the leader in the church in Jerusalem, go to this house of a Gentile and and see the Spirit of God poured out in the same way that the Jews received it at Pentecost? Because God knew that this would be a point of contention. Do you realize that had Peter not experienced that, had he not witnessed what happened in the house of Cornelius, it may have been impossible for the Jews to accept the Gentiles into the family of God without first obeying the law. You couple what happened with Peter, and now Paul has been preaching the gospel to Gentiles, and then Paul stands up, and they begin to tell about everything, the signs and the wonders and the miracles. Why were those so important? Because those were signs that God had put His blessing on the preaching of the gospel to these people that otherwise were totally unacceptable. Do you see how God is fulfilling His commission? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so God is ordered in His sovereignty over the course, not of weeks, not of months, but over the course of years. God in His sovereignty ordered this So that you and I, listen to me, church. The reason you and I are sitting and I'm standing, the reason we're in this building today talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I promise you we would not be here talking about the gospel had God not given that vision to Peter, had God not sent that angel to Cornelius, had God not ordered that so that the Jewish church could accept the Gentiles' in and understand there is no partiality there is no exclusion there is not Jew or Gentile any longer it's one new man in Christ we are a product of God's grace and sovereignty in ordering those things do you i want you to get that i want you to understand that we are the result of God's sovereign Will and God's sovereign work. And so Peter and Paul and these guys get up and they say, Hey, guys, how can we deny? How are we going to make the Gentiles come under the law when God so clearly has poured out His Spirit to them, has given them salvation just like He gave it to us? And finally, this is going on. And who stands up? James. When they became silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And he quotes the scripture. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who are called. By my name says the Lord who does all these things. He says, guys, what are we arguing about? This is the word of God. This is the will of God. This is why Jesus Christ came. This is the fulfillment of the scripture of the prophets. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why are we fighting against God? And so they write a letter. They write a letter from the apostles and elders and the brethren that are in Jerusalem, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. And it says, basically, greetings, we have decided that you guys don't have to keep the law, you don't have to be circumcised, abstain from sexual immorality and polluted foods, and, 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 and just let Christ live in you, and let Christ live in you. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. In other words, let Christ in you. They came to understand the law was never meant to become our righteousness. It was meant to point us to the one who is our righteousness. And so why did God allow this outpouring to take place some five plus years after the day of Pentecost? so that we could be a product of that reality that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Do you see that, church? Had had God not caused Peter to witness that outpouring, it would have been very difficult for the Jews to accept the Gentiles. Now, 17 years after the resurrection, what's happened as a result of Peter's experience with Cornelius The gospel is beginning to go where? It's gone from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. It is now going to the end of the earth. It's gone to the Gentile nations. And we see Paul. Now Paul is the Gentile called apart, or the Jew called apart to preach to the Gentiles. And Paul now is going all over the Gentile world preaching the gospel. This brings us to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. The last recorded outpouring. I want you to see what God is doing through these sovereign moves that he has allowed to take place. In Acts chapter 19... Starting in verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Now, Corinth is across the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's in Greece. Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So, Paul, he's gone, uh, he's gone from Corinth and he's passed through the upper regions. In other words, he's gone all the way around the coastline there, up to Thessalonica, to Philippi, down to Tros, and he's come down to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He's in the Gentile world now, preaching the gospel. And he came upon some disciples. Now, it's important, finding some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And when Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus, when they heard this, hey, the guy you're following, John, they were disciples of who? They were not disciples of Jesus. They were disciples of John. So the guy that you follow, John, who's been dead now over 20 years, but But you understand, it didn't matter that John was dead. These were men that were following the teachings of John. They were still looking for their Messiah. They just didn't know he had already come. Paul says, so what were you guys baptized into? Well, we were baptized into John's baptism. You ever heard that there's a Holy Spirit? You guys know what happened at Pentecost? We haven't even heard there is such a thing as a Holy Spirit. In other words, they weren't believers. They had never heard of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus taught, whom even John taught. Who the church now, for 20 years, was preaching and teaching. They had never heard it. These were not believers. They were disciples of John. They had known only John's baptism. Paul had to come and Paul had to teach them of Christ. They only knew the Old Covenant. They didn't know anything about the New Covenant. But when they heard about Christ, when they heard Who Christ is and what had transpired, they believed and they were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit at the time they were saved. This is the last recorded outpouring. Does that mean the Holy Spirit doesn't come to people anymore? No. If you're saved, do you know what you have? You have the Holy Spirit. Let me read a quote to you, and this is why I am so passionate about you understanding this. This is a quote from a book. This this quote is erroneous, but I want you to understand. This is the attitude of some of the doctrines that have developed over the course of time. They're not doctrines based on Scripture. They're doctrines based on men. Here's a quote directly out of a book teaching about the baptism of the Spirit. Any Christian who had not, it's talking about how the early church viewed, where they got this notion, I'm not sure. Any Christian who had not been baptized in the Holy Ghost was looked upon as not yet measuring up to the standard of the church. You know how many Christians there are walking around feeling like they don't measure up to the standard? Because they haven't had... An experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Church, I'm telling you, there's only one standard. There's not two standards. I don't get saved and then I attain to one standard, and now there's another standard for me to attain to. There's only one measure. How do we know? Because it's what the Scripture says. Paul talks about in Ephesians. It's the measure of Christ. When you get saved, you better receive the Holy Spirit or you're not saved. You say, well, what about those disciples? What about those Samaritans? They didn't receive the Holy Spirit. That's right. They believed, but they didn't receive it until, why? Because that was a sovereign move of God. Was Abraham saved? Oh, yeah, he was. Did Abraham have the Holy Ghost? No. But he had the promise of it, didn't he? And when did he come into that promise? He came into it the same time everybody else did. When the resurrected Christ ascended and took him to the Father, when he led captivity captive. How do we know the Samaritans were going to receive the Holy Spirit? Because God promised it. Why did God wait? Because God wanted to do something sovereign so that we, the church, would understand there is no exclusion. There is no partiality. You don't have to have an apostle of Jesus lay hands on you today to receive the Holy Spirit. You have to trust in Christ. And at the moment you trust in Christ, the scripture says the Spirit himself places you into Christ. And at the very moment the Spirit baptizes you into Christ, God the Father places that very same Spirit on the inside of you. You're not a second class citizen waiting to measure up to some standard. You have, what? The fullness. Who is who? Who is the fullness, church? Christ is the fullness. How do we know that? Because that's what the scripture says about him. In Colossians, let me read it to you. It's so important for you to understand. If you don't know who you are in Christ, listen to me. If you don't know who you are in Christ, you're going to believe a lie. If you don't know what Christ has done for you at salvation, you're going to believe you... You're substandard. You're going to believe you don't measure up. You're going to walk around life trying to have some experience, work really hard to have an experience that's never going to give you anything more than what you have right now. Now, listen to me. Can you grow in the knowledge of the fullness that you have already? You better. You better grow in the knowledge of that. You're not trying to get something more from God. God wants you to have your eyes open, your heart open, your mind open to the reality of Christ in you. The hope of glory. Are you hearing me, church? This is why God has not withheld His Spirit to you. He wants you to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. He wants you to have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. He wants you to be able to lay hands on the sick and see them recover. He wants you to be able to do those things. But but do you do that or does he do that? He does that. But if you don't believe the same spirit that empowers you to do that dwells on the inside of you, are you going to do that? No. If you're going to walk around life thinking you're waiting to measure up, God, what must I do to measure up finally? You're going to go through life thinking you you don't measure up. And if you are born again, child of God, the same Christ that was resurrected 50 days after Pentecost, that same Christ dwells in you. The same spirit that fell 50 days after Pentecost, that fell two years after Pentecost on the Samaritans, that fell five years after Pentecost on the Gentiles, that fell 20 years after Pentecost on those disciples of John, that same spirit If you're born again, it lives and dwells in you. How do we know? Because Jesus said, if you ask my Father, he will give it to you. When does he give it to you? When you're saved. You can't be saved without it. You can't be. The scripture clearly says he withholds nothing from us. He has given us freely all things. If he's given us his son, what's he going to withhold from us? The question is, do you know what you have received when you receive the Son? So, these outpourings are not a pattern for us to follow. These outpourings are a confirmation of God's commission to the church. Those Jewish apostles had to come to understand that this gospel is not exclusive to the Jew. They had to come to understand that God loved the Samaritans and the Gentiles just as much as He loved them. That the same salvation, the same Spirit that was poured out, the same Spirit that takes up residence in us, we are being built up a holy habitation of God. Where? In the Spirit. This is a confirmation that there is... No longer Jew or Samaritan or Gentile or disciples of John or disciples of Apollos or disciples of Paul. But there is now one man. His name is Jesus Christ. These outpourings were a sign and a witness from God to the church. Confirming the commission to make disciples of all the nations without exclusion. These outpourings reflect the transition from the old covenant revelation of the Holy Spirit. Which came only upon prophets and kings to a new covenant revelation that now we are the prophets and the kings in Christ. You are kings and priests unto our God, John said in Revelation. The book of Revelation says what? Jesus Christ is what? He is the spirit of prophecy. He lives on the inside of me. Guess what? If he's the spirit of prophecy and he lives on the inside of me, then that means that spirit of prophecy lives on the inside of me. I'm not Elijah, I'm not Isaiah, but I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it's why Jesus said of John the Baptist, he is the greatest prophet ever born from the womb of a woman. But I tell you this, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Why? Because we are now kings and priests unto our God. Living and dwelling and making its abode, its home in us, is the very spirit of prophecy. Who is Jesus Christ? Can you see it, church? So in John 14, 17 through 20, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's telling them, I am going away and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And it's to your advantage. And he, Go there, John 14, and we're going to end right here. So Jesus is talking to his disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus today? Thank you. If you're born again, you're a disciple. If you're born again, you should be growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How are you going to grow in the grace and the knowledge? By the Spirit of God that lives on the inside of you. God wants you to know the fullness that dwells in you. The power that dwells in you. The reality of His life, of salvation that has come to you in Christ Jesus. John 14, 17. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot see because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him for He dwells with you. Present tense and will, future tense, be in you. That is us today. He doesn't just dwell with us, church. The Spirit of God dwells in us through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer. The world will see me no more. But you will see me. Who's he talking to? His disciples. This is right before his crucifixion. You will see me because I live. He's talking about the resurrection. And because I live, you will live also. Do you know that you're alive today because Jesus is alive? We don't serve a dead Savior, we serve a risen Savior. And because He lives, we live also. At salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Why? Because Christ lives, so do we live. And so we know that Christ, look what He says. Look what He says. At that day, at the day of my resurrection, at the day when you see that I live, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So it's salvation when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, make his home in us. We know that Christ lives and because Christ lives, so do we live. Look at this church and so we know that Christ, where is Christ? He says right here, I am in my father. Where else is he? I am in my father. You are where? If you're a disciple, where are you right now? You're in Christ. And where is Christ? Christ is in you. How is Christ dwelling in you? He's dwelling in you by the Holy Spirit. This is the promise. That doesn't speak of something in the future. It speaks of our reality right now in Christ. So this is the experience of every person who is truly saved from the very moment They're born again. Our baptism in the Spirit is to be placed into Christ, into one body. Our anointing from the Father is to have the Holy Spirit placed in us by the Father. And our salvation is what Paul says. I love what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Why? Because I was crucified. But it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. By the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, the church was birthed. It is the Spirit abiding and working in every believer that makes our baptism, our anointing, and our salvation a present and eternal reality in Christ Jesus. So what's happened as a result of that? Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry, I thought I was done, but I had one more scripture here I want to share with you. Ephesians 2.13. It's the indwelling work of the Spirit that makes all who are in Christ one. Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, that's all of us, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man. This is what he was doing with Peter that day. He gave him the vision. He was breaking down those walls of separation and showing that To Peter that he was creating in himself one new man, thereby putting to death the enmity that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access. We both, Jew and Gentile, no longer is there an exclusion. No longer is there a partiality. We both have access. How? By one Spirit in the Father. Amen, church? By one spirit. By one spirit. One new man. How? Not by might. Not by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord. You possess that very same spirit if you are born again today. If you're not born again today, you do not have the Spirit of God. This is what John says. How do we know we're saved? Well, if you have the Spirit of God. Listen, if you have the Spirit of God, you're going to know it, I promise you. You won't have to wonder. You won't have to wonder. The Spirit in you will bear witness. So I want to ask before we close today, is there anyone, and you would say, I don't know, Pastor Jeff, if I am truly saved. I don't Have that witness of the Spirit in me. I'm not talking about you having some external experience. I'm talking about in your heart of hearts knowing whether you truly know Jesus Christ. That Spirit of God will draw you, it will convict you of your unbelief if you have not come to believe yet. Is there anyone you say, I want to accept Christ before I leave today? Is there anyone? Either you're ready or you're not ready. If you're not ready, that's cool. It I, took me a long time to get ready. But I'm telling you what. You know right now whether you believe or whether you don't believe. And if you want to believe, all you have to do is ask from a heart of faith. And God will save you. He will. It's that simple. It's that simple. Anyone. Anyone, anyone. Raise your hand if there's anyone. Let's all stand. For all who profess to be believers, please understand. Your experiences in the flesh, externally, don't determine at what level or what measure you've come to. If you're born again, you've been brought into Christ. And Christ has been placed into you. The Spirit of God is in you. And His fullness dwells in you. We don't measure up based on what we do. We measure up because of Christ. And now God has placed His Spirit in us and He wants us to grow in that knowledge and that understanding and that revelation of who lives in us. And He wants to bring a continuing revelation of how great a salvation has been provided for us through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we ask You today that Lord, You would cause us to become hungry for Your Word that, Lord, these people would not take what I say just because I'm a pastor, but, Lord, they will get into the Word of God, and they will begin to study the Scripture and see what the Scripture truly declares about who we are in Christ, what happens at salvation, Lord, what it means for the Spirit of God to come and dwell on the inside of us, Lord. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our minds to see, to hear, and to know your truth, that we would be set free, Lord, from error, that we would be set free from the things that would cause us to believe that, Lord, we don't quite measure up. Lord, that there's still something I have to do. Lord, you have done it all. That's why, Lord Jesus, on the cross, you uttered those words, it is finished. Lord, what we must do is receive by faith what you have already finished. We thank you, Lord thank you for your grace, and we thank you, Lord, for the continuing work that you are doing in us and through us by your Spirit. Lord, mold us and shape us and conform us to your very image for your glory, Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.